and welcome to this episode of Red Monks, the Docs Are In series. I'm joined today by Dr. Alan Romano, a former academic and co-founder of The Boy, an AI-powered searchable knowledge base. Alan, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about all this. Great. Alan and I just missed meeting in person earlier this year in Denver. And so while we were both uh, attending BlueCon, you know, it was a pity our paths just didn't quite cross at the event itself. But we learned afterward that we have a lot in common uh, and our background, both as academics, but also in the discipline of digital humanities really uh, makes his story uh, particularly compelling to me. Um, so, you know, on this, uh, you know, the, the series, we're really digging into how academia and the tech industry intersect. Um, you know, I've given a real quick history of the of uh, Alan's credentials here, but I want to hear more about, um, you know, your decision to, you know, leave the university and co-found a startup. So could you talk about what that journey was like and what led you to decide you were prepared to leave academia's sort of marble walls behind? Yeah, so the digital humanities side of it is is a more recent one, and that's um, really the second time leaving academia. So this is a long time coming mm-hmm. for me in a lot of ways. I mean, I spent a long time as a professor. Um and the first step was, was essentially moving out of classics, where I had done a lot of digital works, but I, my early training was in uh, ancient Greek, and I was doing things with digital text. Um, and so that transition really was what set the stage, was um, moving away from focusing so much on a certain kind of research and a certain kind of narrow focus on research, to doing a whole lot of teaching, a whole lot of thinking, particularly with that program and building that digital humanities program at Florida State thinking about how students who might have a humanistic background or might be interested in humanities material can get technical training in order to have jobs that aren't just in the academy, aren't just in the university. And so in, in essence, I was sort of training all these other folks, particularly graduate students, and, and then around me in the university, how to do web development, how to do natural language processing for humanities kind of projects, but mm-hmm. with this idea that that would be training for then go, go uh, getting a job in these other fields. And, and really what happened in a certain way was um, watching them get jobs and being successful and thinking, wait a second, I taught them how to do that. And um, this, is, this looks like a lot of fun and, and, and I need to take some of that elsewhere. So that was a big part of it. Um, and, and then there's definitely a huge part of it too, of it's hum, digital humanities as a field deals with very pressing issues actually about uh, how technology is used in society, how technology is adopted, um, what effects technology has on us. And I taught a whole lot in that area. And just this growing feeling of, I need to be out there doing something there, as opposed to um, sort of looking at it from afar. And that that really was one of many impulses that made me move into a particularly an entrepreneurial direction uh, coming out of the university. Yeah, that reflects my own experience of, you know, seeing all this cool stuff that could be done and uh, feeling like I wanted to be, you know, creating that, uh, that sort of uh, technology as well and, you know, being involved at the forefront and not just kind of recording the history of it. So, yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's a perspective that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Okay, so I, I think what would be a really good uh, thing for us to talk about now would be digital humanities as like the discipline. Uh, mm. A lot of folks who, who watch this series probably aren't familiar with it. It's it's definitely an academic uh, sort of, I don't know, subset of, of humanistic inquiry that we, uh, you know, that I, I, I haven't seen it get outside of those borders as much. So 
you know, would you, I guess, start by defining what digital humanities is for you and how you treat that subject? <laughs> and yeah. can you draw any threads between the tech industry and DH that maybe I haven't thought of? Yeah, and I, I think it's one of those things, I, I've never been a huge fan of that term, digital humanities. I don't, I don't know about uh-huh. you, um, but I, I always find it kind of difficult. Um, so I explain right. often an area that's more at home for me, which is, oh, it's computation on uh, history and literature, you know, everything that Google was doing to your emails, but we can do to Shakespeare or something like that. Um, that that's one quick way to get your head around it. But of course, that's digital humanities is way more than that. And I think um, the way I often describe it for students who are coming to that field is that it's the area of humanities that's really focused on methods of the here and now, both implementing them, technological methods, and thinking through their consequences. And, and so, so you, you run the whole spectrum from very you know, technical work around, in my case, linguistics and computational linguistics, to work on society and uh, history and politics even, and how these things interact around um, any number of issues of interest to humanists, both in the present and the past. So, um, so, so it becomes like a really flexible framework. Um, and I think especially outside of academia, it's really, it really, in some ways, it's always a pity that so much of it, like you said, it, it's sort of not restricted to academia, but it doesn't have necessarily the visibility. Most of what's going on in my mind in AI and a lot of these areas nowadays is applied humanities. It is essentially a digital humanities or some form. And there, there are plenty of digital humanists in these tech companies uh, doing this kind of work, but it's not framed like that. It's not framed as applied mm-hmm. humanities. And, and in a lot of ways, I wish it was. Right. Yeah, I know. When I bring up digital humanities, I get a lot of blank stares uh, in my current role. So <laughs> I kind of push that area of my history back a little bit uh, with the background. But yeah, I mean, when I when I did DH work, I studied um, a lot of uh, archives and and trying to to uh, scan documents that are that are hard to uh, find online. So so there was a sort a sort of I guess library science component to my yeah uh, DH work. Library science humanities it's it's way beyond arts and sciences at a university by nature. It's inherently interdisciplinary. There's this whole thing about humanities data that. Um, I think is a connection between uh, digital humanities and a lot of what's going on now where you've got all these technologies that are dealing with very human data, but um, coming at it, not explicitly from a humanistic point, they may, they may not have to come from that point of view, but, but where a humanities background really does help a lot because as you described for your own experience and, and working in archives and working uh, with that kind of data, you have experience with the messy, unstructured data that is just bread and butter of humanities research and humanities teaching and humanities work. Um, and sometimes you, in these discussions, it feels like people are surprised by this. And it's like, well, well, humanists aren't surprised by this. This is exactly what they dealt with. It's when you're coming to it expecting clean data and that, that you get surprised by it. So so there's really something about the, the moment now with, with data in particular, before we even talk about AI, that... I think right. is a connection with digital humanities. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the, the current wave of AI engages the humanities at this really deep level. So we have ChatGPT, it's this tool for writing. Dolly executes visual art. 
And, you know, many of these new AI tools and technologies, they really depend on collecting, organizing and retrieving data. And, you know, we, we keep reading blogs and, and hearing podcasts uh, about how, it, you know, AI is data. I mean, that is the really the, the, the foundation of all these new innovations in that space. So, you know, a subject that library sciences have, you know, managed for millennia is, is this sort of data aspect. So it makes a lot of sense that, that our definition of DH would, would integrate that uh, as, you know, as part of the remit. Yeah, I used to, there's a, one of my favorite courses to teach was this course called Technologies of Memory, which I kind of invented for grad students at University of Chicago and then taught as an undergraduate course for many years. But it really was this long history of more or less humanity's data and, and memory, sort of memory studies meets technology, history of technology um, uh, and and uh, digital humanities, essentially. Um, but we'd go from tablets, we'd go from cuneiform tablets and list making through catalog poetry in the ancient world uh, as a form of technology, a form of memory. We'd go to memory palaces and medieval rhetoric and all these kinds of things, all the way to LLMs and deep learning and uh, the most recent kinds of technological advances. And when you look at that really long history, um, I think there's a whole lot of things that become really striking about the technological moment, not just that it's not new in some ways, but that issues which often get a lot of press, suddenly you say, oh, well, this isn't the first time we've thought about, say, authenticity, right? Or the first time you've thought about um, what it means to be a mimic, the way LLMs are mimics. Um, you know, how do you mm -hmm. assess that in terms of intelligence? There's really, you know, interesting work on that at all periods. And and so so that kind of history has always been really exciting to me, but I think it's also where that's part of humanity's data. It's not just the technical dealing with it. But it's also um, that kind of way of putting in dialogue and saying, okay, well, not what would Plato think about ChatGPT, right? What would um, different state people in the Renaissance or or outside of let's go outside of Europe, right? Like uh, mm. in the Near East, in in ancient Africa, wh wherever it is, that that brings a radically different perspective, which is I think really helpful to kind of defamiliarizing what's going on right now and, and allowing you to sort of think differently about it. So would you say that this new sort of, uh, um, you know, um, LLM space, the AI machine learning, all of this is really engaging, uh, you know, humanist type questions in a deeper way than maybe other areas in the, in the tech space. I mean, is that maybe what drew you to, um, you know, co-found and, AI startup, or you know, is, is it just more of the same? Are we just uh, no. you, know, you just happen to come into it at that time? Well, yeah. So there's there's a degree of both, right? It was very uh, for yeah. fortunate, you know, that yeah, focused on on language, and I worked with students on GPT two and earlier language models. Um, so that was fortuitous, and and uh, yeah, one of the things I always did myself was sort of building an early language model with Greek, ancient Greek, to get it to generate sort of new Greek uh, many a number of years ago, and and that that's fun. It's interesting, but really. The thing that was, I think, more motivating and sort of intentional was that there's these questions about knowledge, how we know things, how we, um, you know, if you're using a language model in particular, it changes the way that you get information. It changes sort of how you look back at a huge amount of compressed information, all that data they were trained on, right, which kind of gets expanded out when you give it a prompt in a certain direction. Um, and there is a way in which it's an access to a whole lot of the, the communicative record of the past 
yes, it's a lot of internet content, but along with that are things like um, most of the literary record that's online, right? Mm -hmm. um, things in, in a number of languages. I mean, for someone who uh, studied classics, to get it to generate ancient Greek is, it's like a whole bunch of uh, fantasies from doing digital humanities work where it's like, oh, look, it, it does it. Okay, and now we can explore, you know, why, how does it do it that way? Why does it do it that way? What does that tell us? And then those have implications for it, using these in a startup, using these as tools for building blocks of new technology um, and, and really sort of creativity around that. You know, that's the thing I think drew me at ultimately is like um, this flexible set of tools has increasingly, and, and as it exploded this past year, especially, um, we were working on them before that, uh, you know, well before uh, November or October when it sort of flashed mm -hmm. into folks' consciousness. But that accelerated a whole bunch of uh, changes and awareness around these tools, which meant building things became both a lot faster, a lot more stuff out there to think about. And that, that's, very, that's been very exciting um, to sort of think about how you can add value um, with this increasingly growing toolkit uh, that's developing rapidly than, than one would have expected a year and a bit ago if you had asked anyone, I think. Right. So I feel like I have a good sense of what drew you to AI and machine learning in terms of the, the content that your uh, company focuses on. But is there anything from your history, uh, your training as an academic, your teaching background, your research interests that also you felt uh, really well fitted you uh, to succeed as a founder of a company? Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, you think, you know, PhD training and founding a startup, I would have thought those are really different things. But um, mm -hmm. but I think they're actually pretty similar in lots of ways. Um, there's lots of differences one could draw between academia, like being a professor. And a startup. I mean, the 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 main thing is, is there is pace, right? You just get to move so much faster in a startup. But in a yeah. lot of ways, I, I wonder if you know PhD students in particular would gain a lot from thinking about what they're doing in terms of launching their own startup, right? That they are launching their own business, um, and and moving kind of quickly towards learning in particular. That you're trying to get your bearings, get as much awareness of everything going on in that field, you're really becoming a professional as a PhD student. Um, there is a version of that in the, the startup world, which a, a friend of mine uh, who was further along, much further along in the startup journey and is a CEO now of a tech company. But she, she said very clearly, um, the one thing that's guaranteed in a startup journey is that you'll learn, you know, learning. And that was very striking. She's also a form of an ex-academic, but um, mm -hmm. because of course, that's, I think the fear that folks might have if you're in a kind of academic bubble is like, Oh, I'm in the place where learning happens. But, but it was so, it was wonderfully true that um, the, the startup journey has delivered completely on constant uh, learning and, and a really high degree of learning, uh, not just new skills, but, but just whole areas that, that you can get up to speed on really fast and you can interact with other people and people who are fairly generous about, a community, a kind of community of knowledge and practice. And that, that is, um, I think something that I think is much more similar between PhD journey and startup journey. And so that, and it translates pretty directly in the sense that if you did all that learning, you, that's what you built up your skill set as a PhD student was being able to absorb things rapidly to sort of get up to speed, to work with peers who are working on other projects, things like that. Um, that 
skill translates very directly um, in my mind uh, before we even get to technical skills. Just uh, that that it sort of like activates that same center. Mm-hmm. Do you think after speaking with you know a number of folks who've gone through this PhD journey and other you know and folks who've left academia? Do you think it's more difficult to start a company or to complete your PhD? Starting a company, I think, is is more difficult. I think I, I finally uh, came down on that. That um, uh, PhDs can take a lot longer. They can like linger in that way. But uh, mm-hmm. but the starting a company, there is so much that one could do, and it's that kind of constant focus and editing. Um, and that is you have to do it so quickly that I think that that does that's the difference that makes it way more challenging um there's a lot more comfort in that kind of phd journey you can kind of slowly find your focus yeah yeah i get that i mean the phd journey is really centered on your mentor and of course the uh, politic answer is always like (laughs) it depends right you know your phd uh, dissertation director would be and, and how your program looks and all those sort of things what your funding situation is uh but um but yeah i can i can see what you mean that there is maybe a sort of loneliness or, you know, the, the, the stakes are a little bit, uh, well, they're different, uh, but in some ways they're, they're higher in the sense that you do, you have less time to do it and, uh, and less support and, you know, it's a lot of money involved as well. So. Yeah. And I would yeah. say that the, the, the excitement, um, in a lot of ways, the startup journey regains a lot of the excitement. I think that a lot of people have when they go into their, into a PhD where that, that, that sort of newness to things and the, the fact that you kind of have some control over it in some way, yeah. right. That this is, this is your journey. Right. You know? Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And I mean, you do, you lose control when you start the PhD program for sure. You know, it, it, it takes a certain type to finish it. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, since you have, you know, uh, done so much in the space, um, I know I'm curious, what do you, where do you think the AI LLM machine learning space is, is going in the future? What is it going to look like in five, 10 years? And what are you most excited about? So here's where I think the good answer would, of course, be to say making predictions is, is a very dangerous game, particularly in this space, because we've just, I think, seen what, what no one expected to happen around unstructured data and, and particularly generative tools that um, they accelerated very rapidly. Um, so I think most predictions that, that I've seen that I more or less agree with um, will point to uh, this continued acceleration. But I, but I think what's interesting is um, where I, I don't think it's actually this direct line to some sort of all capable intelligence. I think that kind of distracts us a lot from the other technologies along the way. And so where I tend to focus most is that um, what you see, the kind of hype and noise is around um, a certain set of core functionality with something like ChatGPT um, or DALI or, or MidJourney or something where um, it's going to give you a really nice uh, imitation of something, but where I think the the use cases that are, are going to expand rapidly are, and, and where we're going to see just a whole bunch of new things, is that these can act as sort of universal translators. And as you start connecting them, uh, you're going to see ways of translating one domain to another, structured to unstructured at the level of data. Uh, of course, multimodal things everyone knows are on the horizon with image and audio and text all being generated together or sort of uh, integrating with each other. And I think that's where um, there's a new category 
possibilities that I that I'm really interested in. What what is it that you suddenly have um, like fluid interfaces that are streaming from large language models or other sorts of generative technologies? You know, does that change the way you do uh, front end if it's not just an API that you're calling? Uh, for something like so those kinds of I think creative possibilities are really interesting to me alongside with of course in the AI space itself I expect better algorithms like all the research that's clearly been going into that there's an arms race going on and I can't imagine that that doesn't end up with fairly radically powered uh, tools compared to what we're looking at now so um, I think there's there's those two levels but I'm really in in a way more interested in what might emerge from the combinations of these things um which, which I think will be kind of different from what what we see there right now. Well, dangerous as it is to make predictions, I appreciate you uh, getting out your crystal ball for us. Uh, and so I want to thank Dr. Romano for coming on the Docs Are In. Uh, I will provide links to Lagoy and uh, 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 Dr. Romano's um, uh, social handles. Um, and with that, the Docs Are In.